0: It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and with you are your co-hosts, Stuart Sims. Anthony Campolo. And we have with us occasional co-host...
1: Lisette Sims. Hey, guys.
0: And uh, we're thrilled to have you with us. We are talking today about uh, musical structure in kind of a general way. And since uh, Lisette is a creator of music, a songwriter herself, we thought that she might have some interesting things to say as we go through. We have... uh, uh, pretty ri- wide range of music uh to sort of uh uh pose this question Don't we to always? you dear listeners <laughs> yeah we always do it's right says it on the box right so uh uh before we we dive into the episode i want to make sure to say that you can find us online at loosefilter.com or on soundcloud at soundcloud.com/loosefilter i believe we also have a twitter uh feed now tweeting it out Loose oh my god filter. no way twitter yeah but i'm not sure exactly what we'll do with it maybe we'll uh, try to jam some country's electoral process mass <laughs> <Yeah>. trolling <laughs> mass trolling <laughs> Probably that's what you do with it uh uh and also feedback if you like have any ideas thoughts questions etc you can email us at loosefilter at gmail.com so the title of this episode is a question does awareness of musical structure Change a listener's experience? And we don't uh, uh, have an answer to that question that's uh, definitive or objective. It's more one we're posing to you, and we're going to try to set up a few listening experiences for you in this episode to see, to let you explore the answer to that question.
2: Let's give a definition of musical structure. So it's what you would think of as the overall piece of music, whatever it is you're listening to, and how you would break down the different sections, how you would name them, and how they would relate to each other. So it's kind of like the, the blueprint of a building.
0: So because music happens in time, for the musicians certainly, uh, however you're involved in making music, being aware of what Anthony described is really important. And so as a specific example... Anything in a a song or any piece of music that repeats, any idea of any kind that repeats, that is something that as a musician I know probably has some significance because the composer, the songwriter, the improviser, the performer, whatever, wants to make sure that you notice that thing that is repeating. Probably because they're going to use it you know, as, uh, you know, a seed of some way, like a melody that's going to recur, or, you know, it may be just the most important thing, maybe something they develop and grow and change in some way. They want to link
2: some sort of thematic idea between the different parts. Exactly.
0: So so when you think, how do I know what to listen for, to describe, I mean, I'm sure you all know what the word structure means, (laughs) but repetition. That's the one thing I think uh, I recommend first. So if you think about songs... What we describe as song form that you would most often hear is like a verse and a chorus, and they would repeat. And the verses would have different words each time they repeat, and the chorus would have the same or very similar uh, words every time it repeated. And then you can drop in there other sections for variety.
1: And I think an easy connection to make would be any analysis that you may have ever encountered of poetry poetry. Um, taking on, you know, the ends of the line and, and where the rhymes line up and what is repeating. and
0: I What's mean, the rhyme scheme? What's the meter? Yeah. And even visually, poetry will lay itself out in stanzas mm-hmm. so you can see structure to help you. Mm-hmm. Books, novels have structure to, you know, chapters that help you understand this long-form thing, right? So like I said, with music, the challenge is uh, kind of amplified, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, because music, ha- no matter what kind it is, it happens in time. And, you know, if I'm reading a novel and I miss something or forget, I can go back and reread pretty easily, and I don't miss anything, I don't get
2: behind. Yeah, the closest if you had, like, a Pro Tools file that you were looking at and you actually
0: marked the sections. I guess, yeah, I guess so. Pro Tools being software that we use in music recording. Garage yeah, band. yeah in, in production, like GarageBand, uh, a fancy GarageBand, a pro gar- GarageBand Pro. Uh, well, that garage be- band's amateur pro tool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh- garage
1: band with its pinky out.
0: <laughs> so fancy garage band. So anyway, so with that, with that uh, framing, is that enough of a setup? Yeah. No, if <laughs> <laughs> we talk that to, okay. The first thing we want to play for you for you is a song, and so it's in one of those structures where you should, you know, hear <clears throat> some uh, repeating ideas pretty easily. It's from the musical Hamilton, which you might have heard of. It's an obscure. Broadway show from a couple of years ago, Uh, and this is the song Dear Theodosia, and we're just going to play the first uh, half of this song for you, and this is the character Aaron Burr singing to his newborn daughter, Theodosia. Dear
3: Theodosia to say to you, you have my eyes, you have your mother's name When you came into the world you cried and it broke my heart I'm dedicating every day to you Domestic life was never quite my style When you smile, you knock me out I fall apart And I thought I was so smart
4: You will come of age
3: with our young nation We'll bleed and fight for you We'll make it right for you If we lay a strong enough foundation We'll pass it on to you We'll give the world to you And you'll blow us all away Someday, someday
0: Okay, so what you just heard uh, was basically the first half of the song, and uh, the structure was very simple. It was a little introduction, two verses, and then you heard a chorus. In the second half of the song, the second character, uh, Alexander Hamilton, starts singing to his son, and you're going to hear a surprise in uh, what you might expect. If it's the second half of the song, you might expect that Hamilton gets his two verses just like Aaron Burr did, and then there's a chorus. That's not quite what happens. Here's the second half. Oh,
4: Philip, when you smile, I am undone. My son, look at my son. Pride is not the word I'm looking for. There is so much more inside me now. Oh, Philip, you outshine the morning sun. My son, when you smile, I fall apart. And I thought I was so smart. My father wasn't around. My father wasn't around. I swear that I'll, I'll be around, around for you. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll make a million mistakes. I'll, I'll make, make the world safe and sound for you age with our young nation We'll beat and fight for you We'll make it right for you If we lay a strong enough foundation We'll pass it on to you We'll give the world to you And you'll blow us all away Some Yeah, you'll blow us
0: all- So the first thing that was maybe obviously unexpected in the second half of the song is that Aaron Burr started singing again and we turned into a duet. It wasn't just this scene and then and then that scene, right? So the part that was extra that you heard was in between Hamilton's second verse and the chorus. It was the part you didn't hear in the first half. And the reason they did it musically was to let both of the singers of the song sing uh, call and response, right, to kind of prepare our ear for them to sing in harmony in the chorus. But Anthony, you made a great point when we were planning this episode, why it matters dramatically to the show.
2: Yeah, because that's the central conflict, you could say, to his whole life is Aaron Burr being his, you know, sort of frenemy at some point, turning into an enemy later in life. And this is a moment that unifies them in that they're singing at the same time. It's the only time and they're singing about their
0: their children. And it kind of makes the larger thematic point right that that Everyone here is human, and that there are a They're lot of th- as fathers, and, and yeah. more, more, more significant things make us the same than divide even these bitter political rivals, mm-hmm. uh, allies or enemies. Definitely rivals through their lives.
1: One ultimately, it, it influences Aaron Burr's decision because his line before he actually shoots Alexander Hamilton is, "This man will not make an orphan of my daughter." Uh, so it's it it's sets a up powerful that moment. moment. That's yeah, true. That's important. a really
0: good point. So. You may not be aware, if you've listened to Dear Theodosia before, and it's a beautiful song, one of the the loveliest moments of of, of a really brilliant show, but uh, that little eight measures of what we call that bridge strain, where you hear Hamilton and Burr sing about, my father wasn't around, I'll swear that I'll be around for you, and also, to Anthony's point, they're making the same commitment. It's changing them maybe in the same ways, uh, because they have a child now. (laughs) I think it also
2: signifies the the birth of the
0: country also. Whew, well, we could just unpack this one scene for the rest of the episode, couldn't we?
1: But I think also just in general Hamilton consistently compares Burr and and Hamilton and shows how their You mean
0: the show Hamilton compares the yes, individuals? Yes, Burr I should be clear Hamilton. about
1: that. I apologize. Thank you. Yes. I mean the show Hamilton consistently shows how their paths end up Aligning in some interesting ways, and how their lives mirror each other in interesting ways, and how their choices to respond to those challenges and uh, bumps in the road or or good things—they were real life uh, arch nemeses. Um, <laughs> end up, you know, creating the the true differences that bring them to their ultimate demise. That's
0: and to Anthony's point, the way that the uh, Miranda and the other authors of the show skillfully use that as synecdoche for the birth of the United States mm-hmm. and the internal warring factions and and so on. Uh so not this 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 sort of innocent lovely little song that's it's not a big production number ends up kind of being dramatically one of the mo- most significant narratively moments uh uh in this whole Musical, right? Because yeah, it just
2: grabs you when you have all, you know, this crazy hip hop happening all around and then it just all of a sudden comes down. This
0: beautiful yeah. duet, right?
1: Yeah. Well, there's also a vulnerability that comes from two fathers singing about their babies. Mm-hmm. We often hear mothers singing lullabies. The you know tradition is that the mom sings to the baby, but to hear a dad singing about their baby, I think is also something pretty
0: special. So listen to Dear Theodosia in its entirety is our recommendation and see if being aware of that bridge strain, that one phrase that happens after Hamilton's verses, where he and Burr sing back and forth before they sing together in harmony as a duet on that second chorus. Uh, uh, Notice how that really sets up that moment for them to sing together, the arrival of these themes that we've just very briefly started to unpack and touch on, because the music, the reification, the way that moment is made real, not just the narrative moment, but the emotional moment for the characters, the beat for the characters, but the the themes that are in the show, the larger political historical themes, they all have to land. And I don't think it lands without that little eight bar bridge <laughs> putting a little comma in the structure of the song form so that you don't just go verse, verse, chorus, Verse, verse, arrival! It goes verse, verse, chorus, verse, verse,
1: bridge. But I think it also ultimately chorus. reflects that they come from a past where they're choosing to maybe do something different. My father may not have been around, but I'm going to do it different this time, right. which also then reflects the the themes of the whole show.
0: The most important eight-bar formal insertion in the whole show. It's what we're saying, ladies and gentlemen. Without those measures, the United States may not be the country we know it is. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, (laughs) Anthony, you wanted to talk about what may be the most common musical form of certainly the last century.
2: Yeah, it would definitely be the most common rock form, I would say. It started in blues and then came into rock. They would call it a 12-bar blues which is
0: very well known. That's the official name of the form, by the way. Yes. 12, if you look it up in a music dictionary, 12 bar, 12 hyphen bar, meaning 12 measures, 12 bar blues. And when I had
2: my very first guitar lesson when I was uh, 16 years old, my guitar teacher put a a 12-bar blues chart in front of me and said, you're going to play this for the rest of your life. And she was right. (laughs) That was the best thing I could have learned the first day. So
0: what does that mean to say it's a a form? Is that a 12-bar blues? So if I'm writing a song in this, that's just, it gives me the map before I fill in the details?
2: Exactly. So a measure being the bar, which is four beats in a measure, and then you have 12 of those, and that's just a repeating form that happens over and over and over again. And you can have your chorus, your verse, your solo, it all can happen over just that form. So that's why when you listen to a lot of blues music, it can have a really intuitive structure to people. Cause it's, it's just doing one thing like it's over the and same over again. structure
0: yeah. or, or variations on the same foundation. Yes, exactly. You can over, ha- you and, can over and over, throw some and over extra and over
2: chords kind of in there, but it's still just, it's just one big chunk happening
0: which we we mentioned at the the top of the episode for any kind of popular or folk music that's kind of critical right you you don't want something that's compl- complex or obscure to people because that's it's it's there to help them with their feels not you know, work out a problem.
1: I also think it's (laughs) it's really fascinating how uh, deeply intuitive uh, 12-bar blues has become for people, even though they have no idea what it is. But hearing that progression of a 12-bar blues, they would totally recognize it and be able to even fill it in if they had any musical talents themselves, just because they've heard it so many times.
2: Exactly. And not only is it just one chunk that happens, it's one chunk that then has a repeated line within it. The idea is you say a line, then you repeat it again, and then you say another thing. So we'll play a really famous...
0: So uh, that's like, just to to make sure we've got the definition clear. Like you mentioned, Anthony, so we got 12-bar blues. It happens in three parts of four bars each, right? Uh Uh-huh. And you said with the lyrics, there's a structure of say a thing, say it again, Say uh-huh. a thing, say it again, say a third thing.
2: Yeah, like you say, man, the blues got me down. I said the blues got me down, got me going down today.
0: <laughs> yeah, or like, or, yeah, yeah. But then, isn't there since also my baby a... left me, I felt like I'm going to die. Since my baby left me, I felt like I'm going to die all the day long. Don't know what I'm going to do. Yes, exactly. that would be like yeah. a three line uh-huh. blues. So it's like a little bit of a couplet and then a third line resolving it. Yeah, uh-huh. but like LaSette said, it's the Chords are the same for those three lines. They don't have to exactly, but almost always.
1: Yeah, they almost always follow the same harmonic progression. Exactly.
0: You always
2: have the first line, you just play to a little technical, the one chord. Then when you repeat the line, you do it on the four chord, and then you have what you call the turnaround, which is what most people hear pretty intuitively when when they listen to it. They'll hear one line, second line, slightly different chords, and then this turnaround that brings you back to the top.
0: And for those of you who do know uh, basic music theory or chord progressions at all, what's fascinating to me about that third line in a typical blues progression is that it's what we would call a retrograde harmonic motion. It's backwards. It goes five to four, the dominant to the subdominant. It's a very weak harmonic progression. Yeah,
2: because you said when I took theory classes, you could map all of music to a giant one, five, one. Tonal, tonal. (laughs) Tonal, yeah. That's its tendency,
0: because that's physics, right? Uh And so... The blues progression, it's not wrong in, 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 it's wrong in that sense, right? It's mm-hmm. not wrong in an expressive sense because it's on purpose. It's very deliberate in an expressive sense. And it's a basic characteristic. Because it gives you a feeling yeah. of resignation, <laughs> right? Right. It's like built into the the feeling of of the style. But
1: I think what gives it the quality that it has is that it does focus on that four chord a little bit more than it does give the, the five chord the weight, which is what we usually have.
0: Yeah, which is a weaker harmonic relationship to the home base, the one chord which helps the blues feel blue, (laughs) right? Something that the musicians, we do think about, but maybe you as a listener haven't. So, Anthony, you picked three examples for us to hear over the better part of, well, all the 1900s from the very origin, three great examples.
2: Yeah, this shows you saying with this being one of the most important forms in American music history, we have a blue. Oh,
0: absolutely. Not uh, just me. Yeah, totally.
2: <laughs> the yeah. music
0: says that. Oh yeah.
2: So we have a solo acoustic blues song by Robert Johnson from the 1920s.
0: The earliest blues recording we yet have, right? This is the, the OG. Uh, well, we had, we've had like, Charlie Patton
2: report recordings before this, but um, y- there wasn't, these weren't being released on like major labels or anything. These like, you know, ethnomusicologists would just find these guys and stick a microphone in front of them, you know,
0: but Robert Johnson, famous, uh, Robert Johnson, uh, famously influential. His album didn't
2: become famous till it was released in the sixties during the blues revolution. So it's a little weird chronologically because it didn't, have an influence in the 20s and 30s until it was until developed it, style. Until it was kind of found in the 60s as a as a reissued yeah. thing, which is okay. kind of, it, actually a really interesting kind of facet of that history. We, you know? we
0: make a note. We'll do a deep dive
2: yeah.
0: on. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is the the first one you said is from Robert Johnson.
2: Yeah, and then after that we have uh, Hound Dog, which most people know as an Elvis song. So this is where we transition from the blues to the rock and roll and then a modern day pop song essentially that also has a 12 bar blues progression, which is mercy by Duffy. So we're going to map it to three different eras over the last hundred years.
0: And we should mention the version of hound dog we're going to use is the blues priestess recording. That's maybe four years or so before Elvis's early rock and roll version. This is big mama Thornton singing hound dog, which is my personal favorite recording all time Mm -hmm. of this song. Uh, Uh, I think it, yeah. Uh, So if you don't know this version of Hound Dog, by the way, you're in for a treat. So so this is I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, Hound Dog, and Mercy.
3: I'm going to get up in the morning. i been loving. Good can get my
0: room
2: that was I believe I'll dust my broom from Robert Johnson that was just one time through the 12 bar blues so that would then repeat with different verses and then now you're gonna hear a one time through the 12 bars for hound dog you
3: ain't nothing but a hound dog been snooping the door. you ain't nothing but a hound dog been snooping the door. you can wag your tail but i ain't gonna feed
4: you no more
2: and the last track is mercy by duffy
1: You got me begging you for mercy, why won't you release
4: me? You got me begging you for mercy, why won't you release me? I said,
2: release me. That's a great example of how the form can really be mapped to almost any feel. It doesn't have to be a quote-unquote blues song.
1: Exactly, and, and like I said, I think it's so familiar and people don't even realize that it's necessarily inherent to blues itself because they've heard it in so many different genres at this point. It, it's become so ubiquitous that even though it's come from blues, it really can carry on into almost any context.
0: I would say as the specialist point of view, it's that feeling, that relaxed feeling of going to four instead of five is like we don't know to name it that but it's so common and it's such a, a thing and we love it cuz it feels great it sounds it sounds really it sounds good and it feels good Yeah, you know and it's, just, it's great effect.
2: to solo over cuz it's not that much of a, a chord change also two of
0: the notes are the same exactly
1: yeah. and and the inherent sequencing that comes with the one and presenting the idea then moving to the four and kind of re-presenting the idea in a new version in the four chord I think people really respond to that as well.
2: And I can say as someone who plays a lot of blues jams, this is a thing that essentially anyone who comes to a blues jam like that, if you say we're doing a 12-bar blues in this key, everyone will know what you mean. It's like that's the lingua franca of any jam session. That would be your lingua franca. To bring it into a different direction now, this one is a jazz song. So now we have... Uh, Cherokee by Clifford Brown, and you probably wouldn't really want to call it a song because it's not strophic. So
1: more of a jam, yeah,
2: more a uh, tune.
0: Well, I you would you wouldn't call it a song, but it is strophic in the sense that most jazz, if it's not twelve bar blues, it's in another really common form that we call thirty two bar form,
2: and that's what this one is.
0: Then it is a song form. It doesn't have you don't have to have a singer for it to be song form. Thirty two bar form is a, uh, a kind of song form.
2: Okay, that makes sense then, yeah. So what you're going to hear then is what we call the head. So the whole band is going to be playing together and they're going to be playing a melody that was already written down. And That's the tune. The head is
0: the part you would sing if you uh-huh. knew that
2: tune, yep. yeah. And then you have whatever the chord you play behind that, you then repeat that as a chunk, as if you would for the 12-bar blues, and then they solo over that.
0: So this is this is why it would still be a song form, right? Because this is evolved out of bands, dance bands, or whoever who would who would play songs, popular songs for for people like to dance to, right? Mm-hmm. So you're keeping this uh, eight bars in a chunk kind of structure so they play the tune, but instead of going like you said verse chorus, they leave a blank spot with just the chords.
2: And it's it's very unique. And that's unique. the space
0: for the improviser to yeah, do, do their thing. Yeah, it's very thing.
2: unique because it's what makes it really unique from most other forms of American pop, their music is that it has a section that is just there to have an improvised, made-up solo. So if you're playing live or if you go into the studio, they're going into it with the idea that they're going to make something up on the spot.
1: And I think it balances the idea of familiarity and unfamiliarity really, really well. You have this head that's like the main idea that everybody knows that you always come back to, your good old friend, and then you have this totally open space that you never really know what's going to happen. It's unpredictable. And I think that's what makes this form really cool to me is that it perfectly balances those ideas.
0: So if you've ever gotten confused listening to jazz, which I know know that happens to a lot of people who aren't familiar with how that works, uh, this uh, very likely is why. Because for it to make sense, uh, like as music almost, I think... A listener to even like Bob, like, you know, from 50 years ago plus, has to have, I think here there may be a requirement for a basic awareness of form. You're going to hear a tune, and then when that guy starts playing and it sounds like he's just making stuff up... He is just making stuff up <laughs> and, and, and that's right. why it's interesting is to see what he's going to do on the fly. You
2: and know? you're absolutely right that the transition from the head into the solo section can be the confusing part. So we actually specifically chose a track where you're going to be hearing three instruments playing together and then it'll drop out to a single instrument. So and it, that's, sh- it that's should be the very head clear when going yeah. to the,
0: so composed to improvise
2: exactly you hear the moment when he starts making stuff up
0: and this is who and what are we going to hear
2: so that would be clifford brown is the soloist and then his the, the horn players and the clifford, clifford brown, brown it's
0: uh, the band. match max roach quintet actually is who he's playing yeah with. he plays drums so <laughs> and uh, the the track is cherokee A good example for Lisette. your analogy of the head, the tune being your friend. Because <laughs> it's such a it's such a friendly, groovy little tune.
1: It is your friend.
0: Do you think when, when you are creating a song yourself and you think of structure? How do you is that how you think about to balance, you know, like repetition or something that's new, or like when do I need to give everybody their friend? And when can like I, how do you think about this stuff?
1: I think for me, it's about what needs to be said and how you can best say it. Um, So if that's short and concise, maybe it's just going to be verse one chorus, verse two chorus. And then if you've got something that maybe takes a little more unpacking, Maybe there's going to be some pre-choruses, some bridges in there. Maybe there's going to be So the structure
0: is going to be in service to whatever it is you want to say. You You want to communicate the idea. If it's a lyric or if it's a chord progression or if it's a rhythm or however the thing you quote, the thing you want to express manifests in the sound, the structure is going to need to be devised to support that impulse then is what you're saying. You don't go... I'm writing a song, and it's in this structure, and now what do I put in the boxes? No,
1: it, it, it will appear as as it's being written, and so it's, like oh. I said, it will be filling the necessity of what needs to be said.
0: So the conventions then, following the conventions or breaking them is uh, an, on an as-needed basis, like for- Like the material. Yeah, it's not
1: something that I decide. Like I'm gonna make something really outside of the box today, or I'm gonna stick to traditional formats today. (laughs) It's it really is. What what does this idea or impulse ask of me?
0: The Clifford Brown example is an interesting transition for us to uh, a different. We're gonna listen to a different kind of music now, where uh, awareness of structure and process might be even a little more important. Uh, like I mentioned, with jazz, a lot of times it may confuse uh, new listeners to the style if they're not uh, aware of that you know, kind of structural process. But in concert music, uh, broadly speaking, as opposed to popular or folk music, meaning uh, music that's composed, like fully thought out and written down ahead of time, and played by performers, usually from notated music,
1: most familiarly probably known as uh, either classical music or movie scores; those kinds of sounds.
0: Yeah, anything that that uh, is, we call it symphonic music, which means that it is—it's more like a novel whereas a song would be a short story, let's say. And so in a novel, you've got bigger ideas, you take longer to work them out, things like that. Does that make sense,
1: Mayor? Yeah, you got your bigger ideas up in this.
0: <laughs> the next example we have from you jumps us back in time a few hundred years. Uh, I thought it Whoa, would... <laughs> calm down. <laughs> I thought it would be interesting to keep this same idea going, but see if it changes how one may hear a very different kind of music. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, a composer who is obviously very well-known, wrote music that for a lot of people can get kind of complicated and dense. It can get kind of hard to follow the thread sometimes.
2: Especially a piece like this that's meant to have multiple things happening at once. That's kind of like the core idea.
0: Yes, and the piece we have for you is uh, a piece that Bach wrote for uh, Pipe Organ. Uh, Now, that's not the version we're going to play for you. We're gonna play a version for you that was rescored for an ensemble of wind instruments, which the pipe organ is—a bunch of pipes with air, you know, that blow over reeds and make the sound. Uh, this one is like that, but it's human-powered, so it's woodwind and brass instruments. And we thought that uh, the different colors of sound might help uh, highlight the idea, uh, the structure of this piece that we're gonna to try to get you to hear.
1: Or maybe just the wind ensemble conductor loves wind ensembles.
0: Maybe so, but Anthony seconded my vote. It's pretty
2: tight. <laughs> We're going to play the beginning of the piece for you, and it lays out a musical idea, what you could call a theme, that's going to then be duplicated and layered on top of itself. So listen to and first. It'll be yeah. four
0: four times total.
2: Uh-huh. So first, for
0: What we call four voices.
2: You'll want to listen for the main theme theme, it's going to start with one idea and then slowly layer it on top of each other. It'll come in a second time, a third time, a fourth time, and you'll hear this idea build on itself sequentially.
1: It's going to kind of feel like the theme is blossoming open.
0: And every time a voice enters, the rule is it has to start with that theme Anthony mentioned, which is the very first thing you'll hear because the first voice that plays has to follow the rule. They have to follow the theme. So you'll hear voice one play that melody. It's actually called the subject is the jargon term, but the theme. And then they start playing something else. And the second voice starts to join the party. But what do they have to do? They have to follow the rule. (laughs) So we'll play for you. Voice one's in the room, and you'll hear voice two, voice three, voice four enter the room. uh, Just a big old few Through the first (laughs) to get this fugue going and every fugue that there is to be properly described that way has to be a party has to start wait <laughs> it has to start with lonely guy party
1: those people who voice showed up
0: the first no idea why they're there because they're all a fugue state. It's, it's the person who gets there on time it's seven o'clock they're there at 702 right and they're like oh no other guests are here yet <laughs> So so voice 2 is the guest who gets there at like 7:08. Uh-huh. Voice 3 is your quarter after. And then voice 4 is always is your guest with small kids. So they're going to get there almost half an hour after. So they enter last. But they all have to say the same thing when they walk in the door. So this is the the first chunk of the form, what we call the exposition of a fugue by Bach. Wait, Joh- who? Johann John, John Bach. Sounds like a cool guy. He's from Europe. So, at that point in the piece, the party really gets rocking.
2: That's just the little one.
0: now, the <laughs> the reason the reason that that happens, and that that's the rule, is so that that uh, we as the listener, can get our ears kind of spotlighted. On each of the four characters, It's
2: just got a great symmetry to it. Also, well,
0: yeah, it just feels yeah. good. If you, yeah, there's always that we should say in all of this. There's always what Lisette mentioned in her process, which I think many people who create music share a version of that process: the intuition, the the expression, the feeling, the idea has to lead. It always has to lead. All of this stuff is is how we reify it, how we put it out in the world, right? But. Um, uh, what that does, the way these expositions of the fugue work by saying, hi, I'm voice one, hi, I'm voice two. You get your ears clearly on all the characters. And then where we stop the excerpt, what happens through the the bulk of the fugue is all this play. It's the characters having a conversation. Chasing around, the flight, right? And, and the different ways that uh, uh, Bach in this case can really cleverly uh, you know, uh, give you an experience then. And so that all culminates. There's a, 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 a rule about the fugues and how they end, but uh, uh, what you hear at the end is finally the fourth voice, our, our lowest bass voice, the biggest one, uh, and everybody arriving at the same time at the culmination of their idea. So I'm going to play the same 30 seconds from the end of the fugue that we played as the first example and since you've been introduced to all four, four voices and our theme, our, our main subject, uh, see if this sounds uh, any different to you than it did the first time you heard it.
2: I think of the fugue being almost a little bit like a, a computer program, and how you're you're giving it these rules, and then it, it spits something out. And, we're, and those
0: are pretty formal forms, <laughs> so to yeah, speak. Uh-huh. I mean, they're they're high structure, right? Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, you could write you know, pseudo code that would that would explain it. So this is a similar idea in that. We are looking at a composer who figured out a specific process around how he was dealing with the structure of the music itself that then decided how the piece
0: was going to turn out. The process defines the structure. Yes, exactly. Right? And that's it's the same thing for fugues. The process is like you, you got to introduce the first voice, you got to introduce, they got to do this for, And then when you step back, what results from that is what we call the form of the fugue. So... This is now we jump forward back nearly to the present day, late nineteen sixties. Yeah, American composer Steve Reich.
2: You're going to hear a sh- guy on the street actually that he recorded talking about uh, a terrible thing that was going to happen. Like he was talking about you know into the World's so apocalyptic street yeah, something preacher. like yeah. that.
0: Uh huh. So this is uh, he recorded this uh, in San Francisco, right? Yeah, nineteen sixty five. Instead of writing for pipe organ, what he's trying to do is use uh, taped audio to sculpt and create a piece. So here's his material. This is what he recorded.
3: He began to warn the people. He said, after all, it's going to rain after all. For 40 days and for 40 nights. And the people didn't believe him. And they began to laugh at him. And they began to mock him. And they began to say, it ain't going to rain.
2: Steve Reich takes that loop and doubles it so he has two tape recorders going. He takes just a section of what you heard and then he starts to loop it and what happens is one of the tapes that is looping is at a slightly different speed than the other.
3: He, began to warn the people. he said after hour, it's gonna rain after war before the days and before the night. And the people that believe him, and they begin to laugh at him, and they begin to mock him, and they begin to say, It ain't gonna rain. It's going rain It's gonna 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 rain It's going rain It's gonna 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 rain it's god rain It's god rain this rain this rain this rain It's It's rain. It's 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 It's
2: What you're hearing there is he takes just a section of that whole speech and then he has it doubled and has it in two tapes looping with one going at a slightly different speed than the other. So they get slowly out of phase with each other.
0: And this happened. He stumbled on this accidentally, as I understand it. He was working with two uh, cassette tape decks or two. I don't Were they reel to reel, I guess? Yeah, they not reel to reel. Uh, uh, and was trying to make a, a tape piece, was trying to kind of sculpt, you know, sound, uh, uh, music concrète, if you will. Uh, not if you will, I mean, that's what it would be, right? Uh, I should take a moment to plug our the French, episode. The French on. people got him to do it. I should take a moment to plug our episode from Music Concrète to Plunder Phonics. We've covered this subject in some depth, but. Um, he uh, uh, was a broke young composer, and so he'd gotten his tape decks at like a goodwill or something. So they were they ran at slightly different speeds, like Anthony mentioned. But it was it at first it was uh, an obstacle, it was a frustration to what he was trying to do, and then he realized, hey, if I let this just happen, the same loop. If I took a short loop had the the two machines play the same loop and just let's 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 see what happens
1: and i guess the best connection you could probably make to it is when you're in your car and you have your blinker going and you're behind another car with their blinker going and your blinker is going at a slightly different speed as theirs right. and-, and sometimes they feel like they're going at the same speed they, but well then they, 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 they might line up but then exactly. they move they out of phase
0: for three hits <laughs> yeah. yeah and then they move out and then, of phase a lot of time staring
1: at these <laughs> yeah and and it's the exact same connection to this material it's gonna kind of feel like it's meeting together and then comes back out of it's this weird kind of slinky i feel like effect
0: so the thing to remember is that this happens unlike the blinker watching the blinker cycle uh this happens very slowly because the two tape decks are only very slightly uh, uh, different speeds so we'll play for you the next 30 seconds or so of this loop uh, playing on two different sources slightly one running slightly slower than the other <laughs> Dropped out, the 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 waveforms are canceling each other.
2: Yeah, you have different. Peaks and valleys that, that sync up and, and cancel each other, like interference patterns and, and things like that. And it creates an overall structure of what you could co- kind of think of as like consonants and dissonance on a, on a rhythmic level to where it goes out of phase with each other. And so it's like rhythmic dissonance that gets more and more complex and then all the way to the very end kind of comes back together. It has a very weird, almost organic feeling to it and how it, it resolves in a way that doesn't resolve the way we think of music resolving, but it's just, it's like a force of nature just coming together.
0: And what's interesting about uh, this is compared to the Bach, and the reason we wanted to put it right after the Bach fugue, is they're both process kind of music, right? The fugue, uh, though, Bach had to make it. He had to think it out and compose out the whole process, but if you know the the way that the process of a fugue, every fugue you hear is going to kind of follow that process. Steve Reich had machines that would play out a process for him. So he had to set it up. He had to create the material to plug in it. And he, he didn't know what was going to happen either.
1: It's a little bit more improvisational. So it's kind of like the idea of, of the jazz tune we listened to earlier with the head and then the Im- improvisational section, like the fugue is the planned out, Right, the process. head. Yeah, we know where it's yeah. So And the phase shifting is the improv improvised
0: why is, process. Why is this interesting? Well, let's we'll play you a couple more excerpts from later on in the process of this phase shifting and uh see what you hear. So I think that gets to be a pretty interesting thing to listen to as it goes through. It's not like music I put on, you know, every week or something. Well, when you uh,
2: put it in context too, in the mid-60s, it would have been a lot more shocking also.
0: That's absolutely a great point because recorded audio was still a pretty new phenomenon. I that would have been being able to –
2: Like Beatles Help came out this year. <laughs> oh, wow, So it would have been even true. before Revolver.
1: And to be fair, I feel like listening to that piece, I'm aware of other things that Steve Reich has written, and so I'm able to put it into a context of his processes and what he generally writes like. I think if this was the only piece by him I had ever heard, and I thought of this as his entire yeah, it would style be in sure. general, I maybe wouldn't be as into him.
0: And it was. it's also interesting, like we mentioned that he stumbled upon this, right? But it became one of the most important uh, aspects of his composition through his entire life. He's still alive, he's still writing, but still like, uh, you know, a kind of a Viennese classical composer, his style and voice have remained relatively pure once he honed his mature minimalist composition style. But this, discovering this and the idea that as a composer, you can conceive of a process Create material to feed into the process, but then sit back with the rest of us listeners and even performers, if it's performed and find out what happens when you when you hear that, when that process is played out and and made into sounding music. And so we have another Steve Reich piece from uh, a couple years later where he did just that.
1: And going back to the idea that this is maybe challenging if you don't know other pieces by Steve Reich, I think this next piece will help actually put, you know, uh, It's Gonna Rain into, into Context a little bit better as well. And that's Piano Phase, because it takes the idea of, of a recorded idea that you're going to then play with, and it and it gives this idea then to two musicians who are going to do it, human in, beings who yeah, have to perform it which is mechanically <laughs> in concert which is very challenging. I mean if you've ever tried yeah. to clap at a rhythm that somebody else is is clapping at and then slowly Slightly out of phase. Yes, yeah, so move away from their beat it's very challenging.
0: He did uh like Anthony mentioned 65 uh this it's going to rain the next year he did another Reich did a, made another tape piece called Come Out and then the next year like Lissette just said he seemed to have asked himself could I have human beings do this and so he this is the piece
1: and giving the ideas to a piano rather than a human voice saying words i think also really changes your perception of the idea of phasing and what it does to both rhythm and harmony
0: i think it's like turning the focus knob because the sound is the timbre is cleaner and simpler then, you know, the a complex the complexity of the human voice, especially like the preacher, you know, shouting and, and and so on. Uh it's it's pretty straightforward, right? So in piano phase, the material instead of being a sound clip is an eight note pattern.
2: Which then is looped and once it starts interacting with itself, is almost like an electronic-y kind of thing happening. It's, that, yeah, it's
0: wild. Yeah. Okay, so let's play for you. This is uh, just the material. This is the uh, eight-note pattern that does defines the whole main section of piano Phase. So what you'll hear now is... That pattern is looped. A second pianist joins the first pianist playing exactly the same thing, and then, over about fifteen seconds or so, the second pianist s- speeds up very slightly. He starts exactly eighth note after. I'm well, pretty, well, no, he, he starts. He starts at a unison, and then he very slowly <sighs> speeds up until he's one note. Uh, behind i'm sorry i think he very slow he he either speeds up or slows down we have to look at the score until he's one note out of phase from the other pianist yeah that's what i was getting at, right yeah, huh. and so then that happens again the second pianist gradually either slows down or speeds up until they're one note out of phase again and then again and again and again so it's like note one the it, like if you think about it like a round right row 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 your boat You go, we're singing at the same time, and then I go one note, you go one note after me. Then I go one note, and you go two notes after me. Then I go one note, and you go three notes after me. But we're always playing the same thing. And so in this next clip, you'll hear the two pianists playing our original pattern together, and then you're going to hear the second pianist slowly move out of phase, and then it'll lock in One note shifted the pattern with itself and it locks in. We'll let it play for a few seconds and then we'll stop that clip. It's an interesting transition. Uh, how Reich got from working with the tape loops and and using the you know to using the machines to make them out of phase to the two uh, human performers, like you mentioned, Lissette. He started working with uh, taping two piano patterns uh, and then putting them through the phase shifting process, like with "It's Gonna Rain." And another tape piece he'd written uh, in uh, 1966, he'd made and come out. And then this piece, Piano Phase, from 1967. And then he started working with tape and human to see if a person could even do the face shifting part.
2: Which is really cool. And what I probably would have thought at the time is he was like, oh, I created this new kind of acoustical type experiment. And then you think, "Okay, I can hear it so that I should be able to reify it at the same time. And and it could be really challenging, but it can conceivably be a thing that now once we've heard it, then we could actually do it. And it's an interesting question of if we would have ever thought of the idea beforehand. (laughs) A
0: couple more pieces for you to consider, uh, from the, the big end of the world of concert music, so to speak, the epic scale, the big narrative, you know, epic novels, multi-part, uh, works or whatever. Uh, uh, the first one is a very famous piece, but I wanted to to present part of it that maybe folks don't listen to in the dramatic way that the composer intended.
2: Well, this is a piece that everyone's heard, but no one has ever sat down and listened to like, the whole thing <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> it's
0: true. Okay, so it's the very famous Ninth Symphony by Ludwig von Beethoven, which of course in its uh, its four movements and in its fourth movement has a chorus with soloist and uh, has the Ode to Joy, the very famous melody, and that music's been used all over the die place. Hard. and Yeah, it's in Die Hard, for goodness <laughs> sake. But um, uh, the fourth movement is particularly interesting from a dramatic point of view, because in terms of musical form, having a chorus in your symphony, certainly in 1827, makes no sense. <laughs> There's no way to allow for that thing, it was sort of like asking your audience to start reading a book halfway through a movie. It was just shifting gears so suddenly. But when you look at that part of the fourth movement that doesn't match, the rest of the symphony's all instrumental. In terms of form, it's, it's an old one. It's a cantata, which is what composers would use to tell like biblical epics and so forth. So you've got protagonists, soloists up front, and a choir backing them up that functions a little bit like the old Greek dramatic choir.
1: If you're familiar with the Hallelujah chorus, that's the kind of style of singing we're talking about,
0: and that's the kind of work we're to oratorio or cantata. Um, so it's a it's a it's a stage dramatic work almost, right? It just doesn't have actual characters. That's the narrative of the poem they're doing, but it shouldn't be surprising, really, if you're listening to the symphony in context, because the first part of the fourth movement the introductory part before the singer starts singing is all instrumental. And if you understand the form, there's something really cool to hear that you may not have heard before. And I just wanted to kind of give a quick guided tour because I think it's a super cool moment in uh, just musically speaking, but also a lot of folks don't quite get what's going on there. So in the first part of this movement, it begins with this big explosion, this cacophony of sound that would have sounded even more gross and dissonant to uh, listeners back in the early 1800s, it begins with this big, like, just, you know, ex- like I said, explosion, but it's meant to sound chaotic. And then there's this weird thing that happens Beethoven has the double basses, the lowest sound in the orchestra, play by themselves kind of over and over again, and the rest of the instruments on stage sort of respond. And what's going on is. The basses are telling the rest of the orchestra here it's a rachetative, like an opera. There's a singer with this response. The basses are telling the rest of the orchestra that they're mad. The orchestra's having an argument because they're trying to find music appropriate to express joy, and they can't. So what you hear is... This argument, the door burst open at the start of the movement. The whole orchestra is having an argument. And the basses say, they would, they would better start music. the argument. They would. They would absolutely would. And so then the orchestra, each of those episodes, they're playing music from movement one, movement two, movement three. Like, how about that? How about that? And every time the basses holler at them and go, no, no, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. So I'm going to play for you an orchestral. Argument, as composed by Ludwig von Beethoven. Here we go. Beginning of the last movement of the Ninth Symphony. I think it's kind of cool with uh listen to that within mind because then it makes what happens next make a lot of sense. Uh the argument is kind of ongoing and the orchestra finally is done with the bases. They're like you keep rejecting everything you come up with an idea. So they do. They play the very famous Ode to Joy theme, but they play it by themselves. And instead of the argument continuing, the orchestra actually agrees and so what you then get is one of the most beautiful set of orchestral variations I think in the repertoire and uh, this is this is that moment
2: It's funny you, that you now tell the story of what that means, because I always heard that section and it felt weird, but I can never like quite put my finger on what exactly was was weird about it. And it makes sense that it, it was doing that. Do you think that him writing this in the beginning of the 1800s had anything to do with like the idea of like, democracy and ideas and conversations coming together?
0: How could it not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know that he was uh, a very engaged person in terms of that. Right, the whole story yeah, with the Roque exactly, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, so uh, I think that him choosing the theme of joy and that expression absolutely was uh, part of the zeitgeist. It was the feeling of the times, right? Liberty following the you know success I, of the American I guess Revolution. Say the the and,
2: chorus is giving the the people the voice. after the, the terror murdered 40,000 people <laughs> yeah sorry guys
0: uh, okay the last piece that we have for you on this one I think I know that this one would answer absolutely give a yes answer to the the episode title because this music uh, well I tell you what I'm just gonna play the first 30 seconds <laughs>
4: Keep going. Yes. No. Nothing more restful no. than music.
0: I... Now that is a composed work, and it's performed live. It's for symphony orchestra and eight vocal soloists who, who do have microphones, but all the vocal part, everything's performed live. So no taped or you know anything like that in, in all of that weirdness. That's written down. It's rendered live.
2: Someone showed up to that concert on way too many drugs.
0: He <laughs> <laughs> was like, I regret this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is the music crazy or am I? Uh, so, okay. There's a lot to say about this piece. This is by uh, Luciano Berrio, a, a wonderful uh, giant of a composer uh, and the piece is called *Symphonia*, which just means sounds. Uh, and it's a five-movement piece, and it's uh, just an amazing uh, smorgasbord of different <laughs> kinds of musical sounds. But this movement in particular stands out as one that jams people up a lot about, like, what is this weirdness? How is this music, right? So without doing too deep a dive, we just have to do a whole episode on the piece if we really wanted to do it any kind of justice. I want to play two excerpts back-to-back. The first is about a minute. They're both about a minute and a half, a little over a minute and a half. The first is the first minute and a half or so of the third movement of Gustav Mahler's Second Symphony.
1: Totally unrelated piece.
0: Totally unrelated piece. I just want you to listen to that. Now, with that music in your ears, imagine ma- that magically you are transported inside the consciousness of a person who is at a concert listening to that music. Someone's gone to a concert to hear Mahler's Second Symphony, they're listening to the third movement, and somehow you can hear their thoughts. And what you're hearing in the background is the Mahler. the the Movement from Sinfonia by Berio tracks exactly to the Mahler, and parts of the Mahler are always being played in the background. But I like to imagine that on top of that is all of this other music. So you hear associations... Our listener, whose head we're inside of, will hear something that reminds them of Strauss. And so you'll hear a quote from Strauss come through. You'll hear something that reminds them of something else, and that comes cra- of Stravinsky, and Stravinsky comes crashing through. You hear them of uh, something that, rely- that reminds them of a line from a play by Beckett. So they start he- they start reciting dialogue. Yeah, it's a musical stream of conscious. Exactly. So inside our listener's mind, I'm going to play the same clip for you. It's the same music as we just heard from Mahler, but we're now inside the mind of the listener. Sinfonia, Luci- Luciano Berio. <laughs> so then they get back two minutes to that. And then we're at the end of the episode. You know what I'm saying? Good
1: night. We'll go back to your introduction. We're uh, now back to this title.
4: going. <laughs> Nothing more restful than chamber's no. I say i need so You're done What an academic exercise. All mountain on the horizon. A man would wonder where his kingdom ended. Keep going, what? A ball. A danced poem all round an endless chain, taking turns to talk. <laughs> This represents at least a thousand words. I was not counting on. I may well be glad of them. But seeing Daphne and Chloe written in red, counting the seconds while nothing has happened but the obsession with... I'm in the end the walls. Everything heals over...
2: I think that gives a good... Range of different ways that you can listen for when we talk about structure. We ended up not, you know, saying form or a more specific kind of term. We were just thinking, you know, there's a lot of different ways musicians can go into these different things that they're creating and how they're thinking about the the process of how it's created and then how they want it emotionally to to resonate. And we think it's so much detail, yeah, uh so much information. And these are things that the musicians, of course, are, are thinking of. So it's interesting to think how much of that actually translates to the, to the listeners.
0: And how awareness of just the the outlines, just the basics of it, may uh, uh, change the substance of a, of a listener's experience.
1: And whether it's something as common as a song form or something as crazy as a burial piece, um, I think it's... We can all agree that composers come to the table knowing that they have something to say and they can either choose to put it in some sort of context of something that feels really familiar to people or something that feels really unfamiliar to people or pretty much anything in between.
0: And I think it also highlights that the crazy subjectivity of a musical listening experience that you or me as a listener can hear the same music multiple times, but if we reframe the way we conceive it and think about it as we hear it, it changes what we perceive in it, and that changes the experience of it. I think,
1: and it all comes back to pattern recognition, and that's what we that's what respond to, want. and yeah. that yeah, that's That's what the brains crave.
0: All right, this has been the Loose Filter Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We will have another episode up for you on uh, December. What will it be? The nineteenth, I believe. And is that going to be Outsider Music Part Two? I think. Part s- since the internet. Uh, we're going to have a fun dive into what does it mean, you know, what is out, what happened to that, what happened to the idea of outsider music. What happened Since to that? the internet. Uh, you can find us online at loosefilter.com or soundcloud.com soundflout, slash loosefilter. Send us feedback uh, to loosefilter at gmail.com. This has been the Loose Filter Podcast.